Um, raise your hand and we'll be getting into Galatians chapter 6. Now, one other cool thing when we were, uh, so Friday when we were getting together, this group of pastors with these um, Israeli believers, uh, I don't speak Hebrew. Does anyone here speak Hebrew? No one, okay. So we've got a lot of room for improvement there, but uh, I don't speak Hebrew. I don't speak Greek. Now, there's great Bible tools uh, that I use that today you, you, can, you can study in Greek and Hebrew, and uh, thankfully other people have done all the work of translating the words. And, uh, but it's always cool when you're around someone who speaks the language natively, whether it be Spanish, whether it be Russian, whether it be Hebrew, uh, whether it be Greek. And uh, so all three of these gentlemen... They are fluent in Hebrew. They've grown up in Israel. They speak uh, Hebrew natively. And uh, so they were, they were teaching us worship songs in Hebrew. We were, we were mangling them pretty good, but uh, we were doing our best to try and keep up. Uh, but it was cool. Joel, who was the leader, uh, pastor over there, he was talking about the word hallelujah, which we use a lot, right? And, and in the Hebrew, hallelujah is two words. It's not one word. It's two words. And the best way he described it for us Americans, if you were if you're trying to define the two words of hallelujah in the Hebrew for us, is just to turn to each other, because hallelujah is actually people, the, body, the, the nation of Israel, the people encouraging each other to turn to a person and say, let's praise. That's what it really means. He was like, that is the essence. Now he goes, for you guys in the South, it's let's praise y'all. <laughs> That's what he said. You know. So you would turn to your neighbor and say, Let's praise y'all, you know. But nevertheless, uh, whenever you hear the word hallelujah now, because it's stuck in my mind, that you should know that in ancient Israel, they would encourage, it would spur one another to praise because sometimes the person beside you doesn't feel like praising. So hallelujah is a two-word to say, let's praise. Collectively, let's praise. You know, it says, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let's do this. Right? Let's pray. So uh, let's worship in the Word. How about that? Galatians chapter 6. We would have finished up through verse 5, but I was pleasantly interrupted last week with a 10-year anniversary thing. So uh, we'll finish what we have, and then we should be able to finish uh, verses 6 through 18 next week and the week after and finish the book of Galatians here in February and then move into Ephesians following. Now, somewhere in the near future, I want to do a three-week study on the work of the Holy Spirit. So where that will fit uh, between Ephesians or somewhere in the middle there, uh, I haven't decided yet or uh, wait for the Lord to kind of give that clearance. But let's finish what we did uh, a week ago or where we started. I'm going to reread verses 1 through 6 from Galatians 6, and uh, we'll then cover uh, the two points that we didn't get to last week. Starting in verse 1, Galatians chapter 6, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Consider in yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. But if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, or she is nothing, he or they deceives themselves or himself. But let each one examine his own work. We're really good at examining everybody else's work, aren't we? Let 
each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for your word. May your Holy Spirit minister and speak to every heart. You know what we need. You know what each individual needs. You, we pray you take one message and divide it to each person where the exact need is. We know that you have that power, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So we looked at last week um, four things. Well, we looked at two of the four, and then we want to look at the other two. Uh, just by way of reminder or just a brief uh, just kind of review, um, we looked first at what I titled Restore, and that's in verses, uh, primarily verse uh, 1, just verse 1, that it's God's desire that anyone who is entrapped or in bondage or has fallen back or has slidden away, the, the word backsliding is in the Bible, it really is a, it is a term, it's found first in the Old Testament, uh, if someone has gotten off track, if someone has gotten into sin, but they you, you've seen the fruit of salvation in their life and they've wandered away from the Lord or you just all of a sudden you don't see them much anymore, it is incumbent upon those that are spiritual, those that have maturity, those that have grown in the Lord to reach out to them, to say, hey, what's going on? Can we come and pray with you? Now, on the flip side of that, we talked about the fact that just because you reach out to someone doesn't mean that they will reciprocate and say, I'm so glad you reached out. Sometimes you... They won't even respond, or if they do respond, they're not interested. But if the Holy Spirit pricks their heart and we do our job, God will always do his job, right? We have a responsibility to reach out to people, no matter whether they respond back to us or not. But if they do and say, yeah, you know, uh, there is things going on in my life, or uh, I have wandered away, or I'm not where I should be, or I haven't prayed in weeks, or whatever it may be, he's saying you are spiritual in gentleness, not to say... Oh, you know, legalistically harsh. I thought you were a Christian. You should, you know, all these things. I, I would expect you to do far better than this. But we go in a spirit of gentleness and say, hey, God's desire, Jesus would go and find one lost sheep that you would be restored. Uh, because if a person stays in that sinful condition, the Bible said, who the Lord loves, he chastens. If they really are saved, they're going to have severity in the future if they don't turn. Now, if you're not saved... You could probably just stay that way, and the enemy will actually probably, in the best way the enemy can do, bless your life in some way to help you not even need God and just stay away. Now, neither will work. I think people that are unsaved that have everything that they think they want, many of them are miserable too. We see this in Hollywood and entertainment and you know, people that uh, seem to have it all, and yet their lives are falling apart. But those that are saved, they will have the constant constant weight of conviction upon them if they're going to resist. And there will be, there will be, you know, God is, uh, is a good parent. He will chasten those he loves. Has he chastened any of you over the years? <laughs> he certainly has me. Uh, you know, I, I would, you would think that after all these years we wouldn't need to be chastened, but the fact of the matter is we do. Uh, we all wander to some degree, but um, those that are spiritual God usually kind of draws us back with the Holy Spirit without having a whole bunch of people. But when you're newer in the faith, you're younger in the Lord, you're going to need more time, someone to put an arm around you and help bring you back to a place of, no, this is where you belong. 
So we looked at that, and it's our job to, first and foremost, pray. That's the first place. You should just start to pray for people, but uh, ask God help for intervening. Then we looked at uh, refresh. It's not just uh, that the Lord wants to restore someone back into the fold, back into a place of their rooted and growing, but also uh, in verse 2 it says, bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. Um, bearing each other's burdens isn't not necessarily, this isn't necessarily a sin issue. We all have some burdens that have nothing to do with sin. They're just the trials of life. Amen? A lot of the burdens are not sin. Uh, it's just we live in a fallen world. So whether it is a disease that someone is battling, whether it is a family situation, whether someone has lost their job, all of these are burdens that we can and should care about to help. It, 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 we're not to be, uh, remember Jesus with the Good Samaritan, we talked about this, that uh, you know, this, the one Samaritan man stopped and took the time to bind the wounds, to help him even spend of his own money, spend of his own time. We were talking about this Friday in the men's study, um, uh, the fact that you know, I've met Christians over the years that money's not an issue for them. They can write checks, but they will not give their time. They will not give, you know, I've met, met Christians, they will not give their time, which is an affront to God because God gave his time. Jesus stepped off the throne. The, the biggest thing he gave before his blood, his blood was the biggest, but the biggest thing he gave before his blood was his time. He gave 33 years. He stepped out, in, out of eternity into time to give his time. And so to bear each other's burdens, let me tell you, sometimes it's going to take your time to bear other people's burdens. You're actually going to have to be on the phone. Well, I don't like being on the phone. I have people tell me sometimes, I hate phone conversations. Well, join the club. None of us really, that's why no one answers the phone anymore, right? No one wants to talk on the phone. But sometimes to minister to people, you have to talk to them. You can't bear a burden and say, hey, I'm going to bear your burden only through prayer, but I'm, I, I don't have time to talk to you. I'll just bear it through prayer. Well, we, we should bear it through prayer, but that's only part of it. You actually have to talk to people. You might even have to put an arm around someone. Well, I don't, like, I don't feel comfortable with that. Well, we're a family, Right? So all of these things, it's bearing each other's burdens is something we're all called to do. And the more mature you are, the more responsibility you have. If you're not mature, then you have responsibility to become mature. That uh, God can use, he wants the whole family to be strong, the whole army to be strong, the whole team to be strong, that we bear each other's burdens. And there's so many burdens that, that need to be borne. Uh, and here's the really cool thing. You know, when you bear other people's burdens, you get refreshed. It's a strange thing. You stop looking at yourself all the time when you actually look to help other people. One of the best ways out of depression is to go minister to people. It's, it's foolproof. It's one of the best possible ways. Say, if we can get our eyes off ourselves, there's always someone in a worse place than us. Do you believe that? There's no question about it. There's always someone in a worse place than us that really needs, and again, it's not always a sin thing. It's just God is saying, I've put them in your life to see if you'll help. I've put them in their life to see if you'll put an arm around them, uh, even if you're not putting an arm around them physically, at least metaphorically, uh, through a card or through a note or something that we can do. We're called to bear each other's burdens. And what does he say here? So fulfill the law of Christ. Now, we know in the Old Testament, 
there was the law of Moses. The law of Moses was so heavy that in the book of Acts, the apostles gathered together and say none of us could keep it. This is what the apostles said. They stood up and said, look, neither our forefathers nor us could keep the law. The whole reason Paul wrote the book of Galatians was because the Galatians were going back under the law, right? They were putting themselves back under the law and said, you better be circumcised, you better observe these days, you better eat these foods. And Jesus, his law was what? You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. But the whole law is fulfilled in this one thing, love, right? Jesus said this, by this all men will know you're my disciple, that you what? Love one another. And if we love one another, we'll bear each other's burdens. Now, it's, we really can't, in a sense, bear each other's burdens, but when we obey it, the Holy Spirit takes over. Does that make sense? Because really, I can't bear your burden, and you really can't bear my burden. But when we're obedient to say, we will try, then God says, now breathe life into your effort. Does that make sense? You can't really meet the needs of your kids' parents but you're called to do it anyway. And then when you do it in obedience, then God anoints and blesses the effort. See, God knows when we're sincere or not, right? That's what he really looks at. He looks at, he, you know, we can say, we can go through the motions and fool people, but you'll never be able to go through the motions and fool God. And so then he, that's why he will say at the end of the age, well done, good and faithful servant. You've heard, if you attend here all any length of time, you're going to hear me say a lot more. He will never say good and perfect servant. Notice he doesn't say that. Jesus will never say to anyone, not the Apostle Paul, not John the Baptist, not Moses, he will never say, well done, good and perfect servant. He says, good and what? Faithful. And faithful servants try and bear burdens, even though they know they actually can't, but they know when they do it out of obedience and genuine love with the right heart that God will honor it. And then the Holy Spirit lifts the burdens off of people. So we're called to do that, and so fulfills the law and the law of love. So we want to look at the next thing. We have two more this morning. If you're taking notes, and it starts in verse 3. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Well, that's a mouthful that Paul gives us, right? Because at some point in our life, we all think we're something. Uh, before I got saved, I always thought I was something. And I still sometimes think I'm something when then the Lord reminds me, you are nothing. <laughs> I, I, I get reminded a lot by the Lord. And uh, when you've had failures in life, you get reminded of how nothing you are. When you've gotten knocked down in life, you get reminded of how nothing you are. When you realize that life has sometimes steamrolled you, you kind of realize, well, I don't really have the world by a string. And that's actually a good thing. It's good to be knocked down a few pegs in life, to be reminded that we're just as Abraham prayed. Abraham said he was just nothing but dust and ashes. That's what he said when he was interceding for Sodom. He said, Lord, I'm just dust and ashes. That's all we are. It wasn't just a Kansas song in the 70s, dust in the wind, right? You know, so uh, we really are just, uh, just dust and ashes. We're, we're nothing. We're nothing unless God breathes into us. True? I tell people sometimes when I'm sharing my faith, I tell this to the Bonaire kids when we're over there. I said, look, I didn't choose to be born February 1st, 1969. I had no say in the matter, nor did you on the day you were born. You didn't create yourself. 
You didn't choose your birthday. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose anything. We start to realize that God really is in control of everything. And then somewhere along the way, we actually think we created ourselves, that we created our intelligence, that we are so much brighter or more athletic or more attractive or more this or more that, and people fall in love with themselves over time. And so Paul is saying, but this can't be in the church. This can't, that, if the world, which naturally has the philosophy of number one, you know, in love with the mirror, in love with their own accomplishments, but the Lord says for the, the body of Christ, we can't have that. We have to remember we are nothing. If anyone thinks himself to be something, we're really not. And so um, what I've titled this first point, if you're taking notes, as we remember uh, Paul's recalling to mind that, hey, look, you've been saved by grace. You really don't bring anything to the table. I, I've said this before, and it, this, it, it's just something I've observed over life. Um, because I came from a business background, and I would work with companies, I would notice that it would never matter, no matter how big the company was, and the CEO there had just received a $15 million bonus. But people way down the ladder didn't make anywhere near that. And yet the CEO could die of a heart attack and the company wouldn't miss a beat. Well, that's, I thought that, that if you make that much, you must, this, this thing should fall apart with you gone. Mm -mm. Because in the world, everyone's replaceable. You know? Everyone's replaceable. We're just, but we're just human beings that God allows to accomplish anything. But when the Holy Spirit comes in our life and we yield, God can do great things, but we won't take the credit. I believe when you study, I love this, the life of Moses, a great man. But not great because he was great. Great because the Bible said he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. That was God's witness of him. God says, the reason I made Moses great is not because he was as smart as Pharaoh, though he may have been, we don't know. Not because he was born in a royal house, which he was. He was Jewish, but then grew up in the household of Pharaoh. But the reason God made him great was because he was humble. That's the key. He was humble, and God made him into something great. Now, even while he was humble, a lot of the children of Israel still didn't like him. They complained about him all. Do you realize they had one of the greatest leaders in the world, and they didn't understand that they did? That today we still talk about him, but they whined and complained and said, why do we have this dork <laughs> as our leader? That's what they said. Moses, I, I, I told that six years ago, I remember, because I, you know, was... It was, it was rough early going as being a pastor. I remember reading Moses' prayer. Lord, if I've found grace in your sight, please shoot me now. He doesn't say that. But it says, please, he says, please let me die or something to that effect. Please just end my life. And that's where we get the whole please shoot me now thing kind of thing. I don't think I know that's where it came from, but it reminds me of that. But he was humble, and he got to the place where he didn't think that he brought anything to the table, and that's when God says, at the age of 80, you're the man. Lord, I, but, but I can't go to Pharaoh. I don't have what it takes. And God says, I'm looking for a guy who doesn't have what it takes. I'm looking for a guy who doesn't think he has what it takes. 
the last person you really want in Christian leadership is someone who thinks they have it all. They will, they'll run you right over a cliff because they are in love with their own ideas, their own strategies, their own way of thinking. And as Pastor Guzik said, I read, quoted a couple weeks ago, you know, the pastor should be unoriginal. We just, this is what the Lord would have us do. This is what the apostles did. This is what the prophets did. Let's just follow what they did. Let's not try and be, you know, the next great thinker. But let's just be the next great follower of the Lord. And that's what the great men of God were. But as we remember who we really are, the first thing I taught is the eye test. Um, we, we have a tendency because we all have the same flesh, we have the, all have the same sin nature, to put everything into, well, how does this work for me? How, what's in it for me? Um, other people don't have as good ideas as me. Other people haven't thought it through like me. And all these other things. And the longer I've been saved, by the way, um, you know, I've realized that, and this is what Paul talked about in the first couple of verses, we need everybody. But when everyone is yielded, God will bring a lot through each individual person, not just one individual. And that we take our eyes off ourselves. And that we look to the fact that, Lord, I am nothing without you. The other thing that, one of the other things that I've learned that those of you that uh, are even older than I am, you probably say, Yeah, I remember when that finally, uh, that finally set in. The older I get, I realize how weak I really am. How about you? And that's actually a good place to arrive. If you still think you're super strong and you can take on the whole world by yourself, you might want to abandon that real soon, right? Because God will allow things to show you, no, you, you need me desperately. And as a pastor, I mean, I, I, I've done public speaking for years, and yet I come, I've came to the place where, you know, I'd be on my knees before the Lord and realize that preaching has nothing to do with public speaking ability. Public speakers are not pastors, Preaching involves yielding to the Holy Spirit, and you have to have God flow in you and through you. You can do anything on professionalism, but that's not what God wants. And your life either. And you may not do public speaking, you may not be preaching, but God doesn't want you to be professional. He wants you to be spirit-filled. And professional people take great... They like to bring into their office... And I have all the books behind them, right? And the plaques, and the degrees, and the accomplishments. And this is what this got Israel into trouble. They chose Saul because they thought Saul had it all. And Saul thought Saul had it all. He was taller than everybody else, he was bigger than everybody else, he really was a great warrior. And God says, But the next guy, he's smaller but he's going to slay giants because he doesn't think he's much. He doesn't think he has much. And it, just like Moses, God used David way more than Saul because Saul thought Saul had it all. Saul didn't need, hey, I know how to do this. Uh, I'm military experienced. I have all these skills. I'm brilliant. And it led him into more and more pride to the fact he died younger than he should have died. 
and he sunk his whole family. And so pride is a destructive thing, and God wants us to look at the eye test and take our eyes off us and look to the Lord. Amen? Amen. I don't know who the author was. It was author unknown, but it said, a man is usually as young as he feels, but seldom as important. <laughs> young as he feels, but seldom as important. And so we all have to remember we're not important. God is important, and God can... If there's no one in this room... Because we, we, we talked about this too in both our men's... It ended up being a theme in the, in the bottom rowers in our James study and Friday in our, in our uh, First Timothy study that um, people put other people on a pedestal just because, um, you know, one of the brothers was talking about when, when he was going for job interviews, he was wearing a suit, and he went into 7-Eleven, and the guy would talk to him real nice. Then the next day, he was in there in flip-flops and T-shirt, and he said, hey, dude, what's up? <laughs> because he looked at him, you must be somebody with a suit on, but you must be a nobody, flip-flops and a T-shirt. And so people look at people that way, but people also look at themselves that way. And we have to be able to say, no matter who you meet here in Calvary Chapel, they visit, if they're visiting today, or if you meet someone out, God has value for them, even if you think that they look like Pigpen on the Snoopy, uh, you know, uh, what, peanuts, what, yeah, you, know, you remember what I'm talking about. That everyone has worth because God assigns them worth. They're not worthy because of what they've accomplished or who they've uh, but they have worth because Jesus died for everyone. So he counts everyone as equal, but we put people on a pedestal, and we put ourselves on a pedestal. And God wants us to look at the eye test, take our eyes off of us. Andrew Murray said, pride, or the loss of humility, is the root of every sin and evil. Pride, or the loss of humility. God wants us to humble ourselves. And this takes some bit, as a believer, of self-awareness. Uh, I think this is something that every Christian, uh, we're looking right now at some discipleship uh, materials. Matter of fact, a, a brother in Christ um, I had lunch with recently, Mike Skillman, he uh, manages a, a camp and a, a retreat center up in Headwaters. He's written a fantastic discipleship book, and uh, we're looking at it to kind of find formats that we can actually help the whole body here uh, really get discipled. Most people have never been discipled. But one of the things that, uh, that is required in discipleship is to have the Holy Spirit help us become aware of how we're walking spiritually, how we're really thinking, that, that we're able to check ourselves in the Spirit and say, hold on a second, I'm not saying this out of love, I'm saying this out of pride. And at that time, we should do what? Zip it. Or change the heart that it's actually said right. That, but whatever it may be, uh, the Holy Spirit would have us to be self-aware, and but not self-aware in ourselves, aware because the Holy Spirit is revealing, hey, you're walking right now in pride. You're saying this with the wrong motives. You're doing this for attention. You're saying this to, for people to look at you. You want the glory for this, or whatever uh, the, the situation is. But we need to be self-aware. As Paul said in Romans 7, 18, he said, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, Nothing good dwells. The Apostle Paul said that of himself. He said, There's not, in my flesh there is nothing good. I don't bring any spiritual greatness to the table. I bring my flesh. But if I let the flesh be crucified, then the Holy Spirit will live through us. 
In Philippians 2, 3, Paul said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. That's a place we all have to come to. That was written to the whole church. It wasn't just written to the Philippians. It was written to, to us as well, that nothing should be done selfishly. So we have to become self-aware to say, Lord, am I doing this in a selfish manner? It could even be something that on the outward doesn't look selfish, but inward, Lord, am I doing this for a selfish purpose? Is, is there ambition? Am I seeking a title? I can tell you for certain um, that God doesn't want us seeking titles. And by the way, my title as a pastor is not any more important than your title as a mom or a dad or a grandparent. It has a functional role that is important, but it's not more important. You, when you stand before the Lord as a stay-at-home mom or a working mom or whatever it may be, you'll give an account of your life to Jesus, I'll give an account of my life to Jesus, and what you did in the functional role that God gave you. But he won't say, but you were really important, but you weren't, because you had a big title. Now, I have a stricter standard in certain areas because I had to teach the Word. But again, that is a responsibility thing, not that one's more important. Your kids have less responsibility, but you would agree that their lives are just as important as your life, right? But they have a different level of responsibility. But we should be able to, in lowliness of mind, say that others are better than ourselves. Not that they're better but we would put them in front of us. Don't you think Jesus did this all the time? He would be exhausted at the end of a day, and then he would see he would have compassion on the multitude and say, but their souls are more important than my fatigue. This is what, this is what godly, mature people do. They say, the other person's situation is more important than me, so I will yield and help. I will yield and pray. I'll turn... I'll, I'll, this is going to be really hard. I'll pause the TV to pray. <laughs> what a sacrifice. You paused it? Well, you know, you see on Facebook all the time, please pray. Pray now. I see it all the time, right? Now, first of all, we've all been, sometimes they didn't really pray now. <laughs> they said pray now. They even meant that they would, but then they got, then they remembered they hadn't stirred the chocolate milk and then they forgot. I don't know where that came from. I haven't even had chocolate milk in a long time. But <laughs> Maybe I'm craving it. I don't know. But uh, the pregnant moms do, right? They crave certain things. They need it. But, you know, the Lord would have us uh, to be authentic and really putting other people first. And you have to practice this, right? It doesn't come... Easy. You have to practice putting other people first. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. You have to practice putting other people first. You have to really but say, well, that feels fake. Well, it's going to for a while until it becomes you have, Paul said he disciplined himself, trained, but the Holy Spirit would say, no, no, no. Put other people first. Train yourself that way. Be aware of this eye test. Now, he said, if anyone... Th thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself, and the second piece here is a reality check. If we don't grow in humility, if we don't die to ourselves, if we don't take our eyes off ourselves and start to look at God and start to look at others and start to yield and be surrendered to really help people 
and put them in front of ourselves, he says we deceive ourselves. This self-deception always grows. We're either going to grow more humble or more deceived. We're either going to go more humble or more prideful. Wouldn't you agree? We don't stay in a standstill position and say, well, I'm kind of happy right here. I'm just going to say right here, I like about 35% pride and 65% humility in my life. That's about where I like to stay. So I'm just going to hang about there. It's pretty good. And my 35% pride is the kind that doesn't ever bother anybody. It's the kind that just is just my own little thing, right? And God would say, I hate 35% pride. Where did you come up with that number? God says, I want to get you down to zero. Now, that won't happen until you get to heaven, but we can start chipping away at the 35%, right? And that's what he wants to do, that we would have a reality check to understand that if we are okay with where we're at, we're not just going to hang there. We actually will atrophy, and it'll be worse. His self-deception grows. Just like godliness grows, worldliness also grows. Pride also grows. We don't stay in the same place. We're pushing forward, but pushing forward, as we looked at way back in the beginning, we, are, we grow by surrender. The more we yield to the Lord, the more we become like Jesus. And he says, the yielding is how I make you stronger. The yielding is how... It, then actually, after a while, you don't, have to, you don't have to force putting others first. You actually, and this is a strange thing that will happen in the Spirit, you with joy start to put other people first. Joyfully. You're actually... I was telling my wife last night... We, I, we weren't even talking about this text. I said, you know what? I really feel sorry for people that live for themselves. I truly do. I used to not. I used to say, Lord, don't ever put me in the ministry. Please don't ever put me in the ministry. They, don't, they, they, they have really bad lives, as best I could tell. Because I knew enough pastors to know, I don't want to go there. And God said, you, you're going there. I don't want to go there. Send someone else. But the longer... I yield to God, the more I say, Lord, this feels like home. Because yeah, yeah. God said, well, I designed you for other people. I didn't design you to live for yourself. You know, that's what the world, they, they are so trying to drink in pleasure in themselves, and they never find fulfillment. The reality is God wants us to die to ourselves, and Jesus said, if you die to yourself, you'll find life. It's when the seed goes in the ground and actually dies, then you'll find life. Let's look at the last couple of verses, and we'll close here. I've titled Reap in verses uh, 4 and 5, but let each one examine his own work, and then he'll have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. Uh, you know, when you first read this part, you say, does this connect to the other part? Uh, is, is this kind of a... Uh, a standalone statement, but it does connect. Um, as we have a heart to help other people who are in trespasses or they're in some sort of bondage, that, that heart for others is there. Then, then he transitions to bearing each other's burdens. This is just a lifestyle of saying, I want to be there to lighten everyone's load. And by the way, our load gets lightened as we lighten other people's load. And then Paul says in the middle of all that, you can actually become prideful about your yieldedness. Which is strange, right? You made it all the way to the yielded, now you're prideful that you're yielded. And this happens. And then Paul says, but in the middle of all that, you've got to be able to have the Holy Spirit reminding you you're nothing and that you know, someday 
when you die, you're not taking any of your accomplishments and you're going to stand before the Lord, but, oh, by the way, God is looking at your whole life. And he's going to measure all of it. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. If you're a believer, that's where you'll stand. You give an account of every single thing you've ever said, done, thought. Now, the sins won't be counted against us, but the fruit that we could have borne and should have borne, uh, those are things that we'll have some remorse over. And so God says, I want you to reap. I don't want you just to sow, but I want you to reap in your life. And so Paul's saying here, each one, you have to examine your own work. We have to be able to look and say, uh, Lord, where am I at? Taking stock is a term that we might use. If you're taking notes here, uh, the first one, we have to assess our service. Brother and sister, when's the last time you did a self-assessment of your service to the Lord? I can guarantee the Holy Spirit's done it. The Holy Spirit will, uh, you know, when you were in grade school or high school, uh, you know, they would send home the before the report card, there was just that kind of where things stand. Some of us had to hide that report, you know. Uh, I think I threw it away with the bag. Or, you know, uh, was, it, was it this week? I, I can't remember, you know, whatever. Um, but there was an assessment. Johnny is not trending as well as we would hope, you know. Or things are going really well and uh, it, all kinds of reports, but... Uh, when's the last time that we've done an inventory of our service to the Lord? Now, our service to the Lord is comprehensive. Um, my service to the Lord, I pastor a church, but I'm called first and foremost to be a son of God. My primary calling is that I'm God's son. How about yours? Your first calling is that you're either God's son or God's daughter. You're either the son of God or a daughter of God. Your second calling, if you're married, is to be a spouse that walks in the Spirit. So my second calling is a husband. Before, pastor isn't on the list yet, right? Son of God, husband to my wife Sarah, third, a father to my kids, right? Fourth is a pastor, a shepherd to people God's put in my life. Now, if I follow the first three well, the fourth one will be done well anyway. Make sense? But we have to do an assessment, uh, um, you know, Pastors that don't read and pray but preach really good aren't of any spiritual value because God, again, is not looking for expertise. He's looking for surrendered lives, surrendered hearts. The self-assessment that the Holy Spirit would have us do is when we honestly ask the Lord, say, Lord, examine my effort. Examine my attitude. Examine the consistency of, of the walk, right? Consistency. God doesn't want us to have mountaintops and then we're in the valley for weeks. Consistency. But the effort, the attitude. Now you, you guys that are parents or maybe you're a manager uh, at a, at a certain, in a certain field or work, you know when people are putting forth effort, right? Wouldn't you know if, you, if you've ever had to fire someone that you didn't really want to fire them, you would, you would hope that they would put forth the effort, but they refused. And eventually you have to let them go because they just won't put forth the effort. Now, God doesn't necessarily fire, but he will light a fire if our effort isn't legitimate, isn't what he's called it to be. If our attitude is wrong, you know, you never really want to work with someone who has a horrible attitude, right? God wants our attitude as the body of Christ to be joyful, to be giving, to be merciful, to be gracious, consistency. You know, you 
Uh, you don't want your kid to make the bed twice this year, right? You're hoping for consistency, that there's a consistent... Uh, it was one of the admirals in the... Um, I can't remember which admiral he was, but he, I, he was speaking at one of the commencements. I can't remember which, if it was a public university or if he was one of the service academies. But anyway, he, he, he told the graduating class, he said, the first thing, he goes, I want every one of you college graduates to do is make your bed first thing every morning. When you get out of bed, he goes, he goes you need to accomplish something every day, and that's your first accomplishment. <laughs> to make your bed first thing. He goes, when you start to do that, he goes, believe it or not, you will start to actually string together other responsibility. And consistency is something that the military teaches well, and, but it's something that the Holy Spirit teaches in the Scripture too. Consistency. Six days shall a man work, the seventh day rest. That's consistency, right? That's what when people say, well, I don't go to church that much anymore. Well, you've lost the consistency that God's commanded. God's commanded us, forsake not the assembly, and all these things. What we assess our effort, we assess the consistency, we assess the time. Now, so often, I think you would agree that in the body of Christ, God gets the church's leftovers. Well, I looked at my week, and there's a little left for you, God, right? <laughs> I can fit you in for an hour and a half on Sunday. Work? Fit you in a bit? Oh, well, I will. I did pause the TV this week, remember? I prayed, you know, to fit you in a little bit here. He gets our, a lot of times God gets our weakest effort. And everybody else gets the strongest effort. Now again, son or daughter of God first, whether you're married or not, and then your service to the Lord, whatever that may be. And some people, they're physically not able to do anything anymore, but they still can be a prayer warrior. Amen. That's something they can do. Uh, you know, D.L. Moody he, he was convinced he was prayed over to London by a, a girl who couldn't get out of bed. He was convinced when he met her, instantaneously he said, the Holy Spirit showed me you were the one that prayed me here. You got me here. Not the ship, not the money that people sent. Your prayers got me to London. He was convinced of it. And I'm convinced that, that in, in this room, some of you have gotten through things through the prayers of other people. And if they couldn't get out of their bed, that's okay. But if they did what they could. But a lot of times we give God our weakest effort. Um, those of you that like sports, wouldn't you love your team to give the weakest possible effort? <laughs> and yet, I meet so many Christians that are just okay with giving God their weakest, but these men would be furious at the TV set if their team gave the weakest possible effort. The team says, hey, I showed up. What do you, what do you expect? <laughs> I, show, I showed up. I'm here. I didn't say I was going to run, <laughs> hit the ball. I just stay there because I said I was going to show up. I'm getting paid for this. I'm under contract. Can't fire me if you wanted to, you know, that kind of thing. That's ludicrous, and yet people do that to God all the time. In Ecclesiastes 9.10, Solomon wrote, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. If that's true in the work world, it better be true, and it definitely is true, in our walk with the Lord, to do it with all of our might. Paul wrote in Colossians 3.23, and what you do, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. I'm no longer motivated as much. I mean, I, I, I'm still a human being. Sometimes I get motivated by people just like you do. 
But the more I stay my mind on the Lord, I'm not motivated by people as much as what I'm motivated by the Lord who then still gives a love for people. Does that make sense? Love God first, you will love people. Love God first, you will minister to people. Love God first, you will give your best effort to the Lord and you'll give your best effort to people. And you'll do it heartily, heartily. You know what that means? Enthusiastically. Enthusiasm is a word that we don't talk about much anymore. And I see a lot of people hide behind their personalities. One of the things I learned, even when I used to interview for jobs or when I used to, um, you know, when I used to, uh, you know, you'd have opportunities, is even companies hiring, they're looking for, will this person really care? Will they have enthusiasm? Will they care? Or will they say, it's 5 o'clock, I'm out of here, Right? You don't want to hire someone like that. You want to hire people that say, I care to put in more effort that's required. By the way, it's been well said, if you only do as much as you're supposed to do, you'll never get paid for more than you do. Never. But people that give more, but do it with enthusiasm in the body of Christ, God wants to bless enthusiasm and effort. Samuel Chadwick, he said, Truth without enthusiasm, morality without emotion, ritual without soul are things Christ unsparingly condemned. Destitute of fire, they are nothing more than a godless philosophy, an ethical system, and a superstition. That just religious kind of just going through the motions, if there's not an enthusiasm to your walk with Christ, if there's not a hearty doing what God's called you to do, Christ says, look, this is dead. You've got to have the Spirit, and the Spirit gives enthusiasm. Ralph Waldo Emerson, you guys have heard his name, right? Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Every great and commanding movement in the annals of the world is the triumph of enthusiasm. Nothing great was ever accomplished without it. Why do you think coaches get the team fired up and they're jumping up and down? Because the only difference between sometimes two equal things is one has enthusiasm and the other does not. But the Holy Spirit wants a church that has enthusiasm. Yeah, I gotta go do this. Gotta serve in children's ministry today. Somebody's gotta do it. Somebody else should do it. You know, whatever, you know. I'll I'll take a pass at it. Choose to be enthusiastic. All of us should be serving. Would you agree? All of us should be sowing, and all of us should be reaping. Everyone's role is important. And we need other people to spur us on. This is the, ladies, you're going to love this. I'm not going to talk about football for a while now because the Super Bowl was last Sunday. But I have one more mention because I was listening to an interview this week with Tim Tebow. And, and I'm going to try and find Pinterest things for you girl, ladies and stuff, uh, you know, things that you can relate to. But a couple of you like football, so like my mother-in-law you will like, but anyway. So I was listening to, the, you know, Tim Tebow's a born-again believer, uh, the NFL rejected him. I, frankly, I think he has a place there from my own personal view, but I think his stand for Christ actually cost him. But nevertheless, he still loves the Lord, has a foundation, you know, works with uh, missionaries, works with helping kids around the world. I, hear, I heard him on a radio interview this week. It was after the Patriots won the Super Bowl. Congratulations, you Patriot fans. I'm sure you're happy. Uh, your life is better now. Um, <laughs> Don't be too prideful about it, but, uh, you know, we've got more titles than you got, you know, that kind of thing. But anyway, 
So Tim Tebow was being interviewed, and they asked him about Tom Brady. And they said, look, you, you got to know Tom Brady. You were there with him in the summer camp uh, for a whole summer. And he goes, yeah, I, I got to know Tom really well, got to know Bill Belichick really well, got to know the whole organization. He goes, he goes tell, tell me something that impressed you about Tom Brady. Now, everyone gives a lot of grief about deflate gate and stuff like that. Throw that all aside. No one can argue that he and many others have practiced really hard, given their lives, tried really hard. And this is what Tim Tebow said, who's an honest guy, loves the Lord, says, he goes, the thing about Tom Brady that most amazed me is here he is, he's accomplished so much. He goes, right now, he goes, not years ago, now, he's at the top of his game. He goes, he asked the coaches to coach him hard. He says, and they coach him so hard, they're as hard on him like they would be on a rookie. And he says, he loves to be coached hard. He wants to be coached hard. And that's how he's achieved great things. Now, I'm speaking to men here for a second. How many men want to be discipled hard in the Lord? They would have great respect for Tom Brady and say, that is what I want to hear about my quarterback. But then Jesus says, I want to coach you hard. And we say, I don't want to be coached hard. And don't put one of these guys in my life that would coach me hard because uh, they, would, they would criticize what I do or do this or do that. But people that, you think the coaches in New England hate Tom Brady or love him? People that want to coach you hard and spur you on to doing more for Christ do not dislike you. They actually love you. So that is something that it just, I happened to catch that interview riding home from the Wednesday night service at 940 at night. I know God wanted me to hear it because I was like, that, if Tom Brady, who by the way in the 60 Minutes interview, he's still trying to figure out the meaning of life, imagine if he got saved and maintained that same philosophy, what a disciple he'd be. He'd probably be preaching somewhere. Yeah. He's got it right, he's just got, he's got it all right in the attitude for football we need men and women to have the same attitude to the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, examine your work. Do you, Paul's saying, do you want to be coached by the Lord or not? Or are you looking for someone to just say, hey, you just make the scout team, just show up, no responsibility for you whatsoever. He wanted it. Iron sharpens iron, but you have to want to be sharpened. Titus 3, 4, 14 says, and let our people also learn to maintain good work to meet urgent needs that they not be unfruitful. We have to learn these things and want to learn these things. And then the last thing as we close here, expect God's blessing. And Paul says here, um, and each one will have rejoicing in himself alone and not another, for each one shall bear his own load. Don't you want to have a life of rejoicing? Don't you want to truly rejoice? You know, we're all called to labor, but God wants us to rejoice in it. Like I said, the longer I yield to the Lord, the more I get to rejoice in the work of the Lord. And it doesn't happen overnight. You don't lift Super Bowl trophies until you've sweated a lot, until you've lost at times, until you've experienced defeat, until you've put in the blood, sweat, and tears. You don't lift anything. And farmers will tell you, you don't see a harvest unless you get out there and have to till the ground and plant. And in our life, we have to do the same thing. But Paul says, you'll be having this opportunity to rejoice in himself alone. Now, what Paul's saying, he's not saying that 
we're an island, he's saying that you will know that you were actually part of the harvest. You know, it's never, you don't feel, you know, if, if you were, uh, let's say someone called and says, hey, we need people to help us move, right? And a bunch of people show up, and you know, it's, it takes, we're moving baby grandparents with six men, and the, the ladies are cleaning out the drunk, junk drawer and all this other stuff, and everyone's moving the stuff, and then we show up, and there's two minutes left till it's done, and we grab our hand on a bed. And then everyone's high-fiving at the end. We did it in record time, and you're high-fiving too. You don't, it doesn't feel right. You're like, I really wasn't part of this. And Paul's saying that the, the, the harvest, you would know it, whether it was your prayer life or whether it was serving or whether it was your attitude or encouraging other people or coming along. You were part of it. And God says, I want you to be part of it. it your part is a big part of the total puzzles, pieces. Yeah, your, pu your puzzle piece is a big piece. C.S. Lewis said, when first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. But we have many Christians that live their life on the second things and have never seek first the kingdom of God. But when we put the first things first, God, the second things that you care about, Many of them God will bless, but they won't be first. They'll be blessed in the overflow. James Montgomery Campbell said, We plow the fields and we scatter the good seed of the land, but, the fed, but it is fed and watered by, the, by God's almighty hand. You and I, we're just supposed to say, Lord, we're going to keep planting. God waters it, and we rejoice when he causes it to grow. Amen? We rejoice when he does the work. We don't take the credit for it, but we rejoice, and we know that we had a hand in it through what? Through obedience and through surrender. Even though it says, and I close here, for each one shall bear his own load, we have our singular responsibility, but we're together in accountability. Did you catch that? We have a singular responsibility, but we're together in accountability. And I want to say, I am so thankful to God for every one of you, every one of you, for your singular souls and what God can do through your singular individual life. But then if you're married or have kids, then what he can do with the collection of your spouse and your family, and then what he can do with the collection of all of us together. But if each person says, yes, Lord, I'm surrendered, I want to be coached up, I want to be yielded, I want to live for others. The sky is the limit for what God will do. We'll touch lives that have, have not been touched by anybody, and God will touch them through you, through this ministry, and through our surrender and service to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful this morning that you